Hello, this is Dr. Ned Hallowell, and welcome to my podcast, Dr. Hallowell's Wonderful World of Different. Today we have a wonderful guest, a man uh, who I'm not going to introduce much because I want him to tell you his story. So uh, I can tell you his story is surprising and inspiring, but I will leave it at that and I'll let him fill in the blanks because he's a very articulate man, a very passionate man, uh, and a very uh, a very wonderful man. I, I, I read his uh, basically memoir recently and and actually wrote the foreword to it. And uh, uh, so uh, I, I'm obviously taken with him and impressed with him. And I know you will be too. But I don't want to. I don't want to keep yapping my big mouth. I want him to present himself to you. So without further ado, let me present my friend all the way from Texas, Brian Rigg. Brian. Hey Ned, thanks so much for that warm introduction for having me. Yeah, I'm humbled by your words and support. It means an awful lot. And uh, I guess I just kind of launch in with my journey. Please you know, do. Please do. So, um, you know, my my mother realized there was something wrong with me early on because I never took naps. Uh, I quickly started doing crib rocking or bouncing my head in my crib. And my dad remembered walking by uh, the, the room where I was in. And the crib was literally slamming against the wall um, because of my overactive energy. And so as I got a little bit older, I had a hard time speaking. Uh, my mom uh, had difficulty understanding anything that I would say. Uh, I was continually having hard times with my emotions and, and energy, was escaping from my room and house all the time, driving my mother uh, crazy. And at the well, age, not of, to say your home was a prison. You, you mean you were leaving? You, you, yeah, you, you weren't just, escaping. You were. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I was like three or four. My mom would get phone calls from the neighbors as I was playing out in the street in the middle of the night or early in the morning you know, during rainstorms. I was continually finding ways to climb up on the roof as a young child. And so um, at the age of four, so at, my mom, at age three or four, you were climbing on the roof and you were yeah. wandering outside the middle of the night and the, yeah. you just didn't want yeah. to end in anywhere. No, I, I just I wanted to explore. I was yeah. curious. And, you know, my mom sort of putting all the locks very high on the doors that <laughs> prevent me from from leaving. I had a, a German schnauzer, which I love my dog Gretchen that I was always playing with all the time. And. You know, I would uh, escape from the backyard and wander around the street one time in my my diaper. And so my my mom had been, I guess, spoiled by my older brother. who was eight years older than me. And he was fairly calm, easygoing, didn't cause any trouble. So because of that experience, she thought, well, you know, I'll just do the same thing I did with David, my older brother. And it didn't work. So, uh, to so put she, it mildly, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, my dad would wake up in the middle of the night and find me trying to get fish out of the tropical fish tank, you know, when I was two or three, uh, I was getting into my mom's stuff and taking her nail polish and, you know, painting the walls and the carpet. You know, I found a little uh, strand of the carpet in the corner and unraveled the living room carpet into a big, you know, mass ball of, uh, a yarn. And so my mom, you know, just beside herself because she didn't know what to do, uh, took me to the Child Study Center here in Fort Worth to get me analyzed by a wonderful doctor by the name of Stephen Maddox. 
And after several months of testing uh, back in 1975 and 76, they diagnosed me with the terms of minimal brain damage, MBD, and HLD, hyperkinesis learning disabled, which are, with a profound speech impediment at that time. Just to, just to interrupt you, just so listeners know, that's what ADHD used to be called. It was called minimal brain dysfunction, it, you know, uh, hardly a a complimentary term that uh, you're like, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't want to go to a job interview, even though I do qualify for having it and say, hello, I'm Ned Hallowell. I have minimal brain dysfunction. <laughs> go, you're yeah. a guy, come right in. We've got a lot of you in here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's horrible terms. I mean, one, one story I've heard of why it was labeled that way is that when people started trying to figure out what was going on with people like you and I, it was right after world war II. And a lot of the doctors have been trained uh, with, you know, a military background. And right. so they noticed a lot of guys that had suffered blast concussions, shell shock and trauma in war had minimal brain damage. And they were just, you know, they had a lot of, uh, uh, you know, problems with being distracted. They had problems with speech. They had problems right. with concentration. So they just kind of took what they saw with these guys in, in the psychological journals and world and just right. kind of threw it on kids like you and I when we were being diagnosed in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Right. So after my mom got this diagnosis, she was basically, you know, back in the 70s, I said, well, what, what do I do? Because, you know, I failed first grade twice, couldn't speak uh, very well, couldn't read to save my life. And after I failed first grade for the second time, she sat down with the school and they said, well, he really hasn't passed first grade, but we can't continue on putting him back in first grade. Uh, you know, you got to find someplace else uh, to take him. And my mom started having nightmares of seeing her you know, 20 year old son being able to drive himself <laughs> to his own sixth grade graduation. So she she talked to Dr. Stephen Maddox more. And he said, there's a special school here in Fort Worth called Star Point that you may want to look at. And it's a really neat story. Back in the 60s, a very prominent family called the Neely family, the business school at Texas Christian University is actually named after them. They had a grandson that public schools were kicking out of school uh, all the time. And that's what happened to a lot of people like you and I, Ned, from what I've read with my research when people had severe ADHD and dyslexia back in the 60s and 70s, they were just kicked out of school and they just couldn't come back to the school where they were kicked out of. Well, that's what happened to the Neely family. And so they said, well, we have all this money. We're going to find some experts in New York, bring them down. We're going to set up a lab school to focus on kids with severe learning disabilities. And we're going to have a school for our grandchild. So by the time I got to Star Point, it had 10 years of working with kids with severe learning disabilities, working with the Child Study Center there in Fort Worth. And so on the recommendation of Stephen Maddox, my mom got me enrolled. It was kind of like a reverse enrollment process. You had to prove that you couldn't do things <laughs> to actually get in, you know, so I couldn't speak and, and had, you know, trouble uh, doing arithmetic and everything else. So when I got there, I was very demoralized because the school oh, how old were you at that point. I was um, uh, 1979, so I was eight years old. Okay, and so you know, you were this, you were demoralized and thought you were stupid and defective and just absolutely losing. Okay, a absolutely. Um, you know, a lot of the kids that I had gone to school with at Pantego Christian Academy were also kids that I was going to church with because the oh. church ran the school that I'd felt first grade at twice. So every Sunday morning, Sunday night, or Wednesday night, when I went to Sunday school and class, you know, classroom study at the church, 
the kids were calling me moron rig, freak rig, idiot rig, alien, alien rig. I got called. Uh, And so I was, yeah, I was traumatized by, by that. And when I got to star point, I remember sitting down with my teacher, Mary Stewart, and she did, she remembers this. I've had her proofread the book that you've read, Conquering Learning Disabilities, that hopefully will come out this next year. And she remembered me coming in, not looking at her, shuffling my feet. And also the school where I'd gone to, I'd been punished many times for being basically ADHD, just hyperactive, with spankings. So I thought I was going to this new school and I was just going to continue on having failure. So the school and I was, you went to, the, this Christian academy, used spanking as a routine form of discipline. Yeah, I and I I don't know exactly because you know I was a little kid with my memory, right? But I bet I got spankings probably twenty times each year wow. that I was there, wow. and uh, and we had a policy. Unfortunately, I, I don't don't really agree with this with my father, but uh, you know, and he's unfortunately no longer with us. But he had a policy that if I got spankings at school, I got spankings at home. Wow. So that I had. Uh, that's also part and parcel why I had poor self-esteem at this time and was very um, uh, fragile. So I told my teacher about my experience and uh, she gave me a big hug uh, when teachers were still able to give, you know, kids hugs. And she said, Brian, you're not a freak. You're not abnormal. You're not learning disabled. You're learning different. And I'm here to help you find your strengths. And at this wonderful school under the tutelage. That's fantastic that she was really ahead of her time. Absolutely. And it reminds me of your book, Connect. Uh, you know, a lot of times, you know, feeling that connection helps you with self-esteem. And then something that you've said multiple times that a lot of times for somebody to have a good self-image later on in life, they have to point to just one person that believed in them when they were young. And that was and your Mary Stewart. Yeah. yeah. And Mary Stewart, Stewart was that uh, that saving angel. And what was you, interesting? You met her when you were eight years old, eight years old. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, and um, she what was remarkable about her is there was no punishment at the school with spankings. You worked um, to get little chips, these little plastic uh, wafers, if you will. And if you got 20 or 30 of them for doing well at school, being kind, being polite, obeying instructions, you could do wonderful things at the university at the end of the week. Go to the Olympic-sized pool and swim in it at the end of the, uh, uh, the week, jump off the high dive, or go to the TCU football stadium and play a pickup game. So you were incentivized by, with good behavior by getting – nice rewards. Never spanked, never shamed. There was no grades. You worked at your own level. And what they really did that was I thought was special is they found things that you were passionate about to then teach you. So I was really uh, excited about the Titanic and Uh studying about that. So she used that event to teach me about math because that's how ships are put uh, together. I learned my multiplication tables like in one day. And then she talked about how important it is to read and communicate and be able to speak uh, well, to be able to communicate on a ship. And through that, I just dove into learning. And in one year, I went from not being able to do the alphabet. I have that in the child study report uh, to reading a truncated version of Old Man in the Sea uh, by Hemingway and doing algebra and geometry. And I was supposed to be there for three years, but they said after one year, I was basically able to go back into mainstream school, and I did so. But I never forgot that. And when I got into Yale University for my undergraduate degree, I called her up and said, Mary, we did it. And when I graduated from Yale University, she was there. 
So, so you went from being a, a retarded, dumbass alien, uh, in the words of your peers, uh, at age uh, six and seven, to graduating from Yale and uh, leaving all of them in the dust. Well, th- yeah, to, to, to some degree, uh, there, there's some truth to that. I, I think I was the only uh, person at my school that I graduated uh, from that went to Ivy League uh, private school. And in Pantego, I, I kept in touch with a lot of those kids. None of them, to my knowledge, went, went to Ivy Leagues. And what was one thing that was interesting with Mary Stewart when I graduated from that school after one year, I still remember the conversation she had in relationship to those peers that were kind of harsh with me. I mean, kids can be brutal and they don't even understand it, but, you know, we need to do better job of teaching kids to be kind and so on. And and they did teach that at Starpoint. We were all kind to each other. But I still remember her giving me a big hug at the end of this time. She's like, Brian, look. All those kids who were calling you stupid, a moron, et cetera, you now are reading books at a higher level than they are. You're reading books at a junior high level. And that just, my self-esteem, self-esteem was repaired. She also used the wonderful event of the Miracle on Ice, uh, you know, the amazing hockey game of yeah. 1980 in the Olympics when we beat the Soviet Union to show, hey, look at this underdog. Through hard work and discipline, look what they were able to accomplish. Yeah. And that motivated me even more that, hey, I just got to work harder than the other guy. Yeah. I got to just be more disciplined. And so she used those lessons continually to help me learn how to learn, but also how to be confident in myself. So I was blessed. So then from Yale, um, you know, I got into Yale. Uh, and one thing I need to back up, one thing that Mary taught me, like never giving up, led me actually to, to Exeter, our alma mater. We both, you know, went to obviously Phelps Exeter Academy, which we're very proud of. So when I graduated from Fort Worth Christian, the school I'd gone to in high school, I did not do, I, I'm horrible with test, uh, standardized testing. It's, it's one of the things that with my ADHD and dyslexia, it's difficult. And back when I was taking these tests, they didn't give you extra time like they do today for people with our brain chemistry. So I just was not very good with test taking. And Princeton and Yale at the time were recruiting me because I had done very well in football and I didn't get in. So I called up the Princeton football coach. And with what I learned with Mary Stewart of like never giving up, I'm a contrarian, work right. the problem. I said, coach, why didn't I get in? He's like, well, your SAT is low. And I said, well, if you let me in, I can do the work. I'll, I'll, I'll work anybody. He says, well, if it was up to me, I'd have you in, uh, Brian. His name was uh, Coach Toshes, wonderful man. Uh, He said, but I can't do that. I said, what are my options? He says, well, a lot of kids do a fifth year, senior year, postgraduate year study at a prep school, better themselves and come on uh, than to an Ivy League. So I said, okay, coach, I'll try that. And I looked at Andover, Exeter, and Hotchkiss, decided to go to Exeter. And in the first three months, Exeter's Harkness table of interactive learning, active learning, and in focusing on the SAT, I improved my SAT by 250 points. And I got into Cornell and Yale and decided to go to Yale. So that also was a a direct line from Starpoint to Exeter to continue on my academic excellence and that self-esteem started there when I was eight or nine and that that seed you know, basically gave birth to a lot of beautiful, you know, trees of success. And did you play uh, football? At, play football at Yale? You know, I did. I was under Coach Coza. My freshman year, I got injured. I had mm. an avulsion of a hamstring, and I had to hang up the cleats. And I just then kind of shifted a lot of my energy into my studies, which then, you know, eventually gave me what uh, 
it's kind of like a Rhodes Scholarship, but it's just for Harvard and Yale. It's called the Henry Fellowship, uh-huh. and it allowed me to go to Cambridge uh, to get my master's and PhD, and then you know write four books on World War II and the Holocaust. Wait a minute, wait a minute. slow down, slow down, slow down. You see, you go to Cambridge University in England. Yes, and you get a master's and a PhD. That's correct. He's the same moron from Little Town, Texas. Okay, yeah, yeah, moron. And now you've got a master's and a PhD from one of the great universities in the world. And uh, what was your PhD in? It was in uh, the general umbrella is the hi- historical studies, but I focused on the German military, World War II, and the Holocaust, Nazi Germany. And and that was in part because you're you have Jewish in your background. Yeah, when I was uh, 21, I found out when I did research uh, in my family tree that I had Jewish ancestry, which I never knew I had. And I'd always been interested in my German heritage, which I'd heard about for many years Uh and learning about that history, thinking, growing up, seeing all the movies that you and I grew up with, with World War II. And they're still very popular, Saving Private Ryan, you know, Schindler's List and so on. I always wondered, well, how did this happen? And then when I found personal connections to it in the Jewish realm, it motivated me even more to try to explore this question. You know, why was there a Holocaust? How did Hitler get power? How can we prevent this in the future? How do we have the good society? How are we kind to one another? And so on. And you and you you just said in passing, then you proceeded to write four books. That's correct. Yeah, my my Ph.D. got turned into my first book, which is called Hitler's Jewish Soldiers. I interviewed 500 men of Jewish descent who served in the Nazi military during World War II, used all that ADHD. How can that just stop there for a second? How can a Jewish man serve in the Nazi army? You know, it was was interesting. I was um, I was in Germany after my freshman year at Yale uh, and I wanted to learn the language of my ancestors and research my family's background. And when I was over there, I saw a movie called Europa Europa, which is about a Jew who served in the Nazi military in hiding, obviously, and how he survived. And after I watched this film, I asked an old man next to me what he thought. And it turned out that he was of Jewish descent, had also served in the German military during World War II. So I started thinking you know, were there more? And so I dove into it uh, intensely. And what people fail to realize who have studied Nazi Germany, you know, in passing, I think scholars now, especially with my work, I was blessed to kind of carve out a new chapter of World War II. They now know how this was possible, but for many years, people didn't really think it was. And that was the following. When Germany came, when Hitler came into power, he basically said, Jews are bad and Aryans are great, uh, what he called Germanic people. But he failed to define at the very beginning, how Jewish did you have to be to be bad? Well, eventually with the Nuremberg Laws, he defined a Jew as a person who had three or who had two or more than two Jewish grandparents. So three or more Jewish grandparents, you were Jewish. And if you practiced the Jewish religion, you were Jewish. But if you had two Jewish grandparents and had two, quote unquote, Germanic or Aryan or Christian grandparents, you were called a half Jew and you weren't as persecuted as much. And if you had one Jewish grandparent, you were a, quote unquote, quarter Jew and you were persecuted even less. And these men, by German law, were forced to serve in the military with the draft laws. Wow. So it's a really crazy story about this, these legal fictions, these these uh, these groups of people who were hyphenated Jews that were serving in the military. And so it was actually a requirement of the state 
that they serve while their parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles are being persecuted and wearing the Jewish star. So they, so did, I was, they didn't want to serve. Well, they didn't have a choice. Many That's of them, what I yeah. mean, but I mean, if they had a choice, they would say no. Uh, if Yeah, many of them. Well, yes and no. I mean, in, in the 30s, as they're being drafted and brought in, you know, they, they came from a tradition where their Jewish fathers and grandfathers had served in the military in World War I and the Franco-Prussian War. They were proud patriots. They thought Hitler was just going to be like another political party, like in the Weimar Republic, and it was going to come in and then leave. And they liked a lot of things Hitler was doing. You know, re- rebuilding the military, building the autobahn, doing cancer research, uh, kicking the allies in the teeth about the Versailles Treaty. They were very patriotic Germans, and they thought this anti-Semitism would go away after a while. Well, by the time, you know, we know what happened by 1945, most of these men looking back say, absolutely not. I would not have wanted to serve. But at the time, they're thinking, hey, if I serve, I can prove my Germanness. I can protect my family. Uh, I want to help Germany be strong again. I don't want to be in the situation that my grandfather or father was after the fall of Germany in 1918. So it's a very complex psychological world that I dove into. So my first book, I based uh, a lot of the research on 500 interviews I did with these veterans of Jewish descent. And I used all that hyperactivity and drive and ADHD to travel around Germany find these guys, sit down with them and interview them before death took their stories away from history. Wow. And then you wrote three more books. That's correct. Uh, One of the uh, uh, men that I documented, I found that he actually rescued what is kind of like considered the Pope of the Jewish world and got him to America. So this German Secret Service officer who had actually was Aryanized by Hitler, a chapter of my research showed that Hitler would allow some of these men who had blonde hair and blue eyes and good military track records, he would actually Aryanize them, give them the official stamp of approval of German citizenship and allow them to continue on serving as officers and generals and so on. One of them was in the Secret Service. He was asked by the White House to rescue this Jewish pope uh, before we were in war with uh, Hitler. This was in 1939. We didn't go to war with Germany until 41. And this guy actually found this uh, Pope of the Jewish world, rescued him, and got him to America. And it's one of the most remarkable rescues of World War II. That's my second book. My third book, I take 20 of the most interesting case studies out of the 2,000 that I documented and wrote them up. And the book is called Lies of Hitler's Jewish Soldiers. And my fourth book is about the Pacific War and the Battle of Iwo Jima, the Battle of Guam. I focus on a famous Medal of Honor recipient who's still alive. He's 98 years old. He's the last Medal of Honor recipient from World War II, Woody Williams. And then I focus on Japan's Holocaust. Didn't, so didn't, those are my four works. Didn't you, didn't you find out that the guy was a fraud? Well, there's a lot of controversy uh, surrounding him. Uh, yes. Uh, and, you know, I go into the book uh, in detail about how he, he was a hero, no doubt. He did a lot of good things. Uh, but some of the interviews that I found about him, uh, it seems like he was given to some hyperbolic speech. And the chain of command over him noticed that there was a lot of problems. So one of the biggest controversies about him is that the head of uh, the Pacific Fleet, Nimitz, usually always signed off 
on a Medal of Honor from the Pacific War. Uh, you also, the Commandant of the Marine Corps always signed off on a Medal of Honor. And Woody didn't have these two guys signing off or their boards. Uh, and that is really unorthodox. And politically, when you look at it, President Truman pulled it away from the military because he wanted to have a live Medal of Honor recipients, not dead ones. And there were several outstanding cases. Woody was one of them. So I also show that the, the procedures that were put in place were not followed. And it's and that's why it's so controversial. It's really kind of sad that I found, yeah. found this out. So I know more about medal awarding from World War II yeah. and how America <laughs> made, made its heroes than anybody else. And I really did a deep dive into that the last and, five and years. You, you mentioned the Japanese Holocaust. There was such a thing? Yes. You know, when you look at the definition of Holocaust, it means mass murder. Uh, and so, yeah, what Hitler did with the Jews was mass murder, but he also killed an additional five and a half million other people, mostly Russian prisoner of war. Wow. So all told, it was 11.7 million people who he killed. Japan slaughtered 22 million, minimal, 22 million Asians during World War II, and nobody wow. talks about it. Wow. Wow. Yeah, wow. Mostly in China. And they did it the old fashioned way, which is bayonets, starvation. Uh, and lopping off heads with their swords. Rape of Nanking, people have heard about, but they did that everywhere. Rape of Canton, rape of Hong Kong, rape of Singapore. And I can go on on and on. Why? Everywhere. Why? Why did they do that? You know, the Japanese culture under the time of Hirohito was so brutal, so racist, so xenophobic, and they have been raised for not just a small little amount of like five or 10 years by the time Hitler, you know, started World War II. Hitler came into power in 33. But Japan's racist, imperialistic, fascist uh, culture started in 1868 with the Meiji Constitution and, 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 and revolution, if you will. So Japanese had had three to four generations of Nazi-like culture wow. by the time they launched into World War II. And these people were just killing machines. They, they had this old feudalistic uh, mindset that when you go into a town, raping and pillage and killing, uh, killing uh, citizens was just part of war. It wasn't morally wrong. What were they, but were they at war with China? Yes. So uh, in 1927, the uh, Japanese empire started taking parts of northern China. They had already won some concessions at Port Arthur when they defeated Russia in 1904 and 1905 in the Russo-Japanese War. Then in 1931, they basically fabricated an attack in Manchuria called the Mutkin Incident, and they used that as a justification to take over for all of Manchuria, and they wow. turned that into their puppet government. Wow. Then in 1937, they had a little bit of a spat at the Marco Polo Bridge leading to Beijing, and they used that as a justification to take over basically the entire east eastern area of China, basically the half the size of the United States. So Japan's the size of California. Right. And they take over all of, you know, China, basically all the important coastal areas, all the farmland. And they basically just ran China. And, now, they, the, and they killed 20 million people in the process. 20 million, at least wow. 22 million people. Absolutely. Wow. No I mean, one just a, talks about it. You're right. Nobody talks about it. Yeah, a lot of people don't know about it. You know, for every book that is written on the Pacific War, you have about 100 that is written on Nazi Germany 
right. in, in, in Europe and the Battle of the Bulge. Right. Part of that is because Germany has done such a wonderful job of setting up monuments, museums, and opening right. up their archives. Japan has done none of that. There's not one monument, one museum dedicated to the atrocities Japan did during World War II. Wow. How, did, how, did pay- China, how did China get, it, get back those taken lands? Well, what happened was by the end of the war, uh, when Japan surrendered, the nationalists came in and basically seized all the south and middle regions of China. Mao Tse-Sung kept up the north primarily. Then you had a civil war between Mao and you had a civil war going on. The crazy thing about China is that it was a war within a war within a war. You had little mm. warlords fighting each other. You had the big boys, Mao Tse-Sung and Kai Kai-shek of the nationalists fighting each other. And then all of them were in some way fighting the Japanese that were coming in. When the Japanese left, all of a sudden, basically, the Chinamen, the Chinese, went to two different factions, either the communists or the nationalists. And there was civil war there. And in 1949, Kai Kai-shek basically lost and escaped to Taiwan. And that's how the communists took over. Now, another reason why we don't know about this as much as we should is that Mao Tse-sung was slaughtering his own people. In fact, people think that from 1925 until 1976, he slaughtered a minimum, a minimum of about 35 million people. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. So it's very hard for him to point the finger at Japan and and really kind of monument the slaughter. Why Why was Mao killing his own people? Well, a lot of it was because they were nationalists. A lot of them were going against him in the big cultural revolution in the 60s. If they were not adhering to him or if he was paranoid, I mean, most dictators you always find, like the Night of the Long Knives with Hitler or the July 20th, 1944 plot. There's a lot of people trying to get them. And then there's a lot of paranoia about people trying to get them. And so they eat their own and they kind of implode eventually with these massive movements of these dictators. And Mao is a perfect example. Look at Putin right now. I mean, he's slaughtering people left and right to go against him and, you know, is going to start a war. These dictators are continually hungry for victims. And Mao Tse-sung is, is the most bloodthirsty uh, one out of the history. So that's another reason why we don't know, know about it like we should. Wow. Also, Japan has only paid $1 billion in reparations, whereas Germany's paid $90 billion, And a lot of that money's been used to remember the history, where Japanese culture is very disgraceful and they're cowardly with dealing with their past in an honest way. Wow. Well, this, Brian, I could talk to you for a long time. We, we're running out of time. The podcast audience doesn't have a long attention span. but, <laughs> but I, well, There I are cousins. I hope they're as impressed with your story as, as I am. And uh, we left out you're having three wonderful children and, and you're being now in the financial advising business. You're a multi-talented man uh, and you were in the Marines and uh, uh, you've done so many different things. You're you you. For the moron, so-called, at age six, who was found wandering the street in his diapers at three in the morning, <laughs> that's quite a wonderful, wonderful story. You really are a, just such a shining example of what a what a great person can come out of such a, a difficult beginning. But the, you had all the earmarks, and and that wonderful teacher, Mary Stewart, who who said, no, you don't have a disability, we want to unwrap your gifts, and then proceeded to do that. And mm-hmm. uh, and then the rest is history, literally. 
I can't no. thank you enough for coming on. You're 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 a true hero and and a, a wonderful example. I hope everyone listening just felt as inspired as I did. If anyone wants to get in touch with you, do they just Google Brian? Yeah, Rigg yeah. I have a website called Brian Mark Rig, and Brian spelled with a Y, like in Yankee. Mark with a K, and then a Rig R I G G. So they can find me that way and contact me. My books are there, but if they want to ask me, you know, some of the techniques that helped me, I'll be more than happy to share more of my story with them to help them with their kids or themselves. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to my friend and just exemplary man, Brian Rigg. Well, this, you, is Dr., this is Dr. Ned Hallowell for the wonderful world of different, Dr. Hallowell's wonderful world of different. And we've had a spectacular representative from that wonderful world, uh, Brian Rigg, who has just done more interesting things than you could ever count. Um, and uh, just to uh, just a fantastic man. If you'd like to send us suggestions for future shows, we'd love to hear them. Please, please send us an email. The website is different. The word different at hallowellcenter.org. That's different at hallowellcenter.org. Uh, we depend upon your emails. We depend upon your show suggestions. We want to hear from you and uh, we will get back to you for sure. Again, the word different at hallowellcenter.org. Thank you all so very much. Thank you, Brian Rigg, and thank all of you for listening. Please be in touch with us. This is Dr. Ned Hallowell saying goodbye for now until next time.